right, let us get started with prayer, and then we'll be right into, um, right into our passage this morning. Father, we come before you this morning as your children, just looking forward to spending time in your word and hearing you speak to us through your spirit, using your word. We ask that you would just show us what you have for us to learn today, that we would see Jesus as you present him, the eternal son of God and the great high priest that we have making intercession for us. Thank you that you desire for us to be close to you. We ask that you would help us now to draw near and to see how we can do that through your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we are going to be starting in chapter 10 of Hebrews today, and we are going to be finishing the book or our whirlwind tour of Hebrews in three weeks, and looking forward to um, spending time with you this morning in that. Wanted to just start by reviewing the purpose of Hebrews that we see and how the writer is accomplishing his purpose so that we have that in mind. So we talked about this you know, two weeks ago when we started Hebrews. So I've cast the purpose of Hebrews as the writer is, is writing in order to help believers who are facing the temptation to stop following Jesus and to keep believing. Specifically, Jewish believers who are being tempted to go back to the um, observance of the commands of the Mosaic Covenant with all of its rules. Those believers were facing some difficulty and hardship, probably had not amounted to martyrdom at this point, but there had been difficult times, and the Jewish community um, around them was not understanding how they could be turning away from the traditions of the fathers and turning to Jesus. And there was temptation there to stop following Christ and to stop believing and to, to pursue the easier path of the Mosaic Covenant, or the perceived easier path. So what does the writer do to help his um, readers understand that, the, that they need to keep persevering, to keep enduring? Three approaches that he uses. First, by showing that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything. We saw last week that Jesus um, was the better high priest, better than the Old Testament high priest. We saw that the, the new covenant that Jesus introduced through his blood was better than the old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant. And now in chapter 10, we'll see that there's another comparison of how Jesus is better, and it's the sacrifice. That Jesus as the sacrifice is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. We'll be looking at that in a couple minutes. The second approach was to encourage believers to draw near to God. This concept of drawing near is throughout the book. And he's constantly saying, let us draw near. So it's an inclusive approach. He's not saying, you people out there, you're stopping believing, you need to draw near. It's none of that finger pointing. It is the arm around the shoulder, let us draw near to God. He is encouraging them to do it corporately as a body together. He wasn't saying, you Lone Ranger Christians need to go out there and, you know, and, and win the battle. It's like, no, we need to do this together. The church is important. The body of Christ is important to help all of us keep believing and not turn back to things that we're tempted to. And then the third approach was warning believers that there is, it's a dangerous thing to throw in the spiritual towel, to turn back from, from following Jesus. It is a very dangerous ap approach to do that. So let's look at chapter 10. So this, um, this argument of, sorry, not argument, this 
the section of talking about how Jesus' sacrifice is better actually started back in chapter 9. If you look at uh, chapter 9, verse 22, he said, um, all, the, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So he starts to introduce this concept of sacrifice, which invo involves a blood offering, is necessary in order to have forgiveness of sins. And then he talks in verse 23 that there are better sacrifices. He talks about how Jesus entered into the holy places made, he did not enter into the holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, verse 24. And instead of a repetition offering by the high priest once a year on the day of atonement, Jesus entered in and offered himself once for all. So we get to chapter 10 now, verse 1. Let's just read a few verses. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here we see a few things. We see that the continual annual sacrifices, the daily sin offering sacrifices, could never perfect people who were trying to draw near to God in worship. They couldn't perfect that. It was proven by the fact that you had to keep offering. So every time you sinned, you had to offer a sin offering. Those animal sacrifices in particular failed to cleanse the conscience. So the conscience was still guilty. And then those sacrifices were a constant reminder of how sinful the people were. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Animal sacrifices never accomplished forgiveness of sin. So it's not just that it's improbable or unlikely that the blood of bulls and goats would take away sin. It was impossible. It just couldn't happen. The animal sacrifice, animal blood, was ineffective in that regard. Verses 5 and 6, there's an Old Testament quotation here. makes it clear that, that God was not taking pleasure in those sacrifices. He is not as a lot of the, the, the gods of the of ancient peoples with voracious appetites for, you know, sacrificial offerings. He wasn't like that. God wanted the worshiper to come to him by faith and offer the sacrifice in obedience. That was the point. In verse 11, if you drop down there for a moment, it says, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. Can you imagine being a priest? And this is your job every day. Every day you're standing there at the altar, you're sacrificing these animals, and tomorrow it's the same. And the next day it's the same. And the next day it's the same. Yeah, Timmy. So the sacrifices that we're talking about here were under the Mosaic Covenant, so that would have taken place after Mount Sinai. So after Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, God gives him the law, and then he starts laying out the sacrificial system that we see in Leviticus. But animal sacrifices go all the way back to Genesis, 
where when Adam and Eve sinned, God offered an animal sacrifice. He slew an animal. And then we see Abel, we'll talk about Abel in a few minutes. Abel offers a sacrifice. Cain's sacrifice is rejected. He brought fruit of the ground instead of an animal. But the sacrifices go way back. And none of that was effective. How frustrating this would be for the priest, right? Can you imagine you know, taking a, a job satisfaction poll for priests? And their, their, their job satisfaction is like low. I do the same thing every day. It's hard physical work. It's, it's awful. I'm having to kill these animals. And the same people come back every day. And they commit the same sins every month. But the offerings had to keep being made. The work was perpetual until Jesus came. So let's look at this awesome contrast now. That brings us to our first question. So we say, how effective is Jesus' sacrifice? Let's read verse 12 together. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So first fill in the blank here. Christ's sacrifice was effective. This is a timing question. Verse 12, for all time. That's right. It was once for all time. From that time forward, sacrifices did not need to be made because Jesus paid it all. Paid the price of sin for every single person who had ever lived, for every single person who was living then, for every single person who would live in the future. Every sin that they committed in past, present, or future, paid, done. Only infinite God could pay the sins for an an innumerable number of people with an innumerable number of sins. Wow. So instead of one sacrifice paying for one sin, we have one sacrifice paying for all the sin for all time. And then what did Jesus do when he was finished? He sat down. The work's done. See the contrast with the priest? The priest is standing at the altar, standing. Why is he standing? Because he's doing his job. When did Jesus sit down? When the work was done. All done. I used to help my dad with projects around the house. <laughs> and he, and I would, he would be busy in something and not talking to me about whatever he was doing, and I'd, like, I'd just sit down, right? And he'd say, you can't do a job right when you're sitting down. That was like his, one of the phrases my dad would say. And it stuck with me. But you know what? Jesus did the job. And he sat down because he was done. There was nothing else to do. Praise God. Verse 14, we see the result of that. Just read it together. For by a single sacrifice, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what's our fill in the blank here? He perfected. He perfected us for all time. So Jesus' work is done. He's made it possible for us to be perfect. Do you see this in that verse? He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So once we have been saved, we have the future goal of becoming perfect, and we're in the process of being sanctified. So he's made the future result possible because of the present action. It's a little bit of a confusing verse because it combines 
both what Jesus did and its future effect and what we are doing presently and we're working toward being like him. This is what we would call progressive sanctification. That is, we are becoming holy. We are becoming set apart. We are becoming more like Jesus every day as we walk with him. All right, we need to keep moving. And I just filled in the next blank. So in verses 19 through 25, I love this passage. In 19 through 25, we see, the, we see the results of this. And we see the writer gives us two reasons and three commands. So the two reasons are in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Did you catch that holy places phrase? When did we see that before? It was when Jesus wasn't going into the holy place on earth, the holy of holies. He went into the holy place that is heaven itself, chapter 9, verse 24. So, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the throne room of heaven, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then he gives the three things that we need to do. So, the two reasons here. First of all, it's based on Jesus' blood. We have confidence to walk into heaven because Jesus shed his blood for what Jesus did in the past. And then, based on Jesus' ongoing work in verse 21, as, as priest, as high priest in verse 21. So not only do we walk into the throne room of heaven confidently because of what Jesus did in the past, he paid for our sin, therefore we can be holy, but also for what Jesus is doing in the present, sitting on the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us as the great high priest. Bringing his blood before the Father anytime we sin and saying, that's paid for. I know he did that yesterday. I know he's going to do it tomorrow. I paid for it yesterday, today, forever. His ongoing work as high priest is critical to our relationship with God on an ongoing basis. His blood is critical for us on our relationship to God on a permanent basis. It's just awesome stuff. So the, the, the basis is based on the basis for us entering the throne of the throne room of God is based on what Jesus did in the past and what he's doing in the present. He continually mediates between God and us for us. So let's look at the three commands now. Verse 22, what's the first one? Let us draw near, yes. So here's one of the things that we should do because of this awesome privilege of having our sins paid for and the awesome privilege of having Jesus mediate between God and us. We should draw near. This is one of the themes of the book, draw near to God. We need to draw near to him. So this nearness is relationship. Being close to God is not a fairy tale, an idyllic dream, or wishful thinking. We can be close to God. So we can enter these holy places, and God wants us to. 
He wants us to be close to him. Look at this, um, this phrase. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance. Another one of the sub-themes in Hebrews is confidence, assurance. Being confident that what we are being told to do is possible. It pops up throughout the book. Let me just run through some real quick. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says, hold fast your confidence in Jesus. In 3.14, it says, hold our original confidence to the end. In chapter 4.16, we know this verse, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that you might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. 6.11, have the full assurance of hope till the end. 10.19, enter the holy places with confidence. We just talked about that. 10.35 says, don't throw away your confidence part of a warning passage. 11.1 in the faith chapter says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. 13.6, we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. So we can be confident in walking into the throne room of heaven, not because we're special, but because Jesus is. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done and Jesus is doing. He paid for our sin He's mediating with the Father. So how is it that we're to draw near? Well, first of all, with, this, with a true heart. So we, while we have access to the throne room of God, we can't just waltz in any way we want. It says we are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Being close to God is an act of faith. And we need to have clean hearts and pure bodies, it says in, at the end of verse 22. Okay, what's the next one in verse 23? Let us hold fast. So not only do we draw near, but we hang on. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So what are we to hold fast to? What does it say specifically? Confession of our hope. Our hope is Jesus. Yeah. So right answer, just I wanted to work toward that. So the confession of our faith is what we are to hold fast onto. Hang on to Jesus. So how are we to hold fast without wavering? You ever been driving on the highway and there's someone that's just kind of like, they're all over the place and you're thinking, I think there's a problem here. I don't know if they're on their phone or if they're a little bit tipsy or just not paying attention, but they're like all over the world, all over the road. That's wavering. We need to be driving straight. We need to be hanging on to Jesus without wavering. Positive, solid faith. And why would we do that? Why? Because God promised and he's faithful. It's the end of that verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. We can trust God. This is the essence of faith, trusting God because he promised. Verse 24, our last one, let us. I'm hearing whispers. <laughs> consider, and what are we to consider? Stirring up, stirring up others. Great, thank you. Let us consider stirring up each other, one another. What are we to stir up people to? Love and good works. How are we to do that? by encouraging one another. And specifically, what do we encourage people in? 
Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the context, we're to encourage each other to keep believing. There's lots of ways we can encourage each other, but this is the most fundamental, to encourage each other to keep believing. The way that we do this is we get together. This is why corporate worship is important. This is why when someone says, well, I can worship God by watching online, that's just not the same. Because how do you do this? How do you become encouraged to keep walking with God? And how do you encourage others to walk with God, fulfilling this command, unless you're actually here rubbing shoulders with brothers and sisters in Christ? And then we ask, how long? And the answer is, till Jesus comes. As we see the day drawing near. And it says to do this more and more, all the more as you see the day drawing near till Jesus comes. I love this, this symmetry where it says draw near to God. Jesus is going to draw near to you when he comes back. You see how he just like wraps that together? It's wonderful. He wants us to have a closeness with him. So, just take a minute for this question. Which of these commands resonates most with you, and how could you practice it today? Anyone have anything they want to share with us on that? Yes, please. I guess before we fast, just going through hard times in life and just realizing that I need to cling to Christ because I can't do this on my own. I can't understand sometimes what's happening or why something's happened, but I'm just <coughs> holding fast to the truth of his word, to who he is and what he's done. Amen. Hang on tight. Anybody else? Okay. We'll move on. So chapter 10 closes with the fourth warning passage. I didn't, have any question, I didn't have any questions specifically about that. You remember some of the other warnings were like a negligence kind of thing, like pay attention so you don't drift away, you know, don't fall off the ladder of faith, that kind of thing. This one is more severe. Verse 26, take a look at it just real quickly. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, so sinning deliberately is like an intentional act. So if we keep sinning, if we keep disobeying what God has told us, that's a problem. And the problem is a lack of faith. The problem is that we're not recognizing that the blood of Jesus has paid for our sins. And if we do that, it, it says that we are trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus. That, that, like, that the imagery there is just like it sounds. It's like Jesus' blood is on the ground and you're like stepping on it. You're stomping on it and saying, I don't accept that. That's what we're doing if we are sinning deliberately. And it goes on and talks about how we need to fear if this is the case. In verse 38, it says, the righteous will live by faith. It's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2. Same verse is quoted in Romans 1 and Galatians 2. And those verses, it's talking more about the just will live by faith as in justification by faith. Here, the writer uses it in the context of a life of faith, continuing faith. So not justification, but the ongoing sanctifying work that faith does in, it, in us. So what does it actually look like to live by faith? 
That should be the question that's in our mind as we get to this point in the book. And the writer is saying, I'm so glad you asked. I have like 34 examples. I, I don't know how many. I didn't count them. Well, I have lots of examples for you of what faith looks like. I have a whole chapter full for you. So first of all, he needs to, to, to define faith a little bit for us. So how, in your own words, is faith defined as we see it in verse 1? Cindy, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I don't know if you could hear all of that, but believing that God will do what he said he was do regardless of my circumstances. Excellent. The hope for today and for tomorrow. The hope and for tomorrow. The future. Good. Anyone else? Let's read the verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we see two elements to this. Assurance of things hoped for, things that we are looking forward to, that we have confidence about, and then the conviction of things not seen. It's like a verdict that's based on unseen evidence. So what this is not, this is not wishful thinking. This is not just hoping in imaginary idyllic concepts. I would call that a rainbows and unicorn view of faith. That's not what we're talking about here. This is faith that is based on evidence. The evidence, however, we can't see. This is not turning a blind eye to the evidence. This is looking at the evidence and reaching the conclusion, my God will do what he promised to do. So here's the definition I wrote. A settled confidence about the future based on what God promised in the past, very similar to what was said. So what's a, the subject of the first example of faith in verse 3? Creation. Creation. Good. So isn't that kind of interesting that that's where he starts? So in talking about examples of faith, he, he doesn't have a person that he points to. Why? There was no one there when he created the world. So believing in the Genesis account of creation is in itself an act of faith because there was no eyewitness there except God himself. We didn't see creation happen, but we can see the result of it all around us. So what evidence do we have that God made it? Well, we have God's account of it. We have God telling us how it happened in his word. So we have a choice to make on faith in creation. Do we trust what, man, what God has said or what man postulates, what man speculates, what man thinks happened because they don't want to believe in God? And let me ask, do you find what men say more credible than what God has said? It's like, oh, well, when you put it that way, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's really what it comes down to. No matter what you believe about the origin of this world, there is a step of faith involved in it. And my question is, where is your step of faith going to go? Is it going to go on God's side with what God said, or is it going to go on man's side with what man says? Why would men be more credible than God? Faith says they're not. So, verse 5, we see this incredible account of Enoch why was 
Enoch commended by God. And before you answer that question, let's talk about what the word commend means. So commend is a recognition of worth, a form of praise. So for example, a Marine was commended by his commanding officer for valor in combat. So that's a commendation. So now the question. So what does, why was Enoch commended by God? What does the text tell us? Jeff. He pleased, he pleased God. That's right. If we went back to the Genesis account, we would find that he walked with God and that pleased God. That relationship which he maintained, a, a relationship of obedience to what God had said and nearness to him was pleasing to God. That's what God wants. God wants relationship with us. And when we have relationship with him, when we confess sin and we are maintaining this relationship with him, it pleases him. God wants an unfettered relationship with each one of us. That's why he created us. Imagine that. The God of the universe who created this whole place wants a personal daily relationship with me. That pleases him when I choose by faith to pursue that. So what's the key ingredient to pursuing God? It's not a trick question. Faith. faith. That's right. Faith is the important ingredient. So we see in, in verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, Number one, you have to believe that God exists. And two, that he rewards those who seek him. It's impossible to please God without it. Not improbable or unlikely, but impossible. Faith is the key to pleasing God. All right. Consider what area of life that you could exercise faith in a way to please God. So we'll, we'll skip over this one, but let me encourage you Regard, whatever your circumstances, to trust God for whatever you're going through. Whether it's a health situation, a financial situation, a relationship problem, trust God. Trust to choose him, trust to take him at his word, trust his promises. Trust his power to say no to sin. Trust for endurance to persevere, to keep believing. And then because we only had four chapters this week, we had the opportunity to read this, this great chapter again. What remarkable things did Noah and Abraham do as a result of their faith? Let's take them one by one. Noah, what did he do? By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham, what did he do? He left home. And as he's going out of town, people are saying, oh, Abraham, where are you going? He said, I don't know. God's going to show me. I'm taking a step by faith. Incredible things that he does. So this next question, I think, was maybe a little obscure in, in retrospect. What are the similarities of these incidents? Let me just tell you what I thought. I think there's a pattern here. We see a promise or a command. Promise or command by God speaks to this person. We see the person take that promise or command in, and they, by faith, take action. So the action is directly linked to the faith. The faith is directly linked, linked to the promise. So God makes promises. We exercise faith, and by faith, we take action. We do what God asks us to do. And sometimes 
that's just one foot in front of each other, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. That's all we can do. The next best decision that we can make when we're not sure. All right, number six, which of the heroes of faith has God drawn your attention to this week and why? Someone be willing to share with us maybe somebody in this list that stuck out to them? If you don't share, then you're going to have to listen to me more. So, anybody? So the one that, that kind of jumped out to me that, I, that it probably hasn't in, in the past um, was Abel. So in verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the, this word commendation, commend, um, jumped out at me because it's also mentioned for Enoch. And then um, a- Abel is also mentioned, and I didn't write down the verse. Maybe we'll come to it later. Abel's mentioned later in the book. That's part of why it jumped out to me. And the other reason it jumped out to me is because there's a, another contrast that's set up, and this book is full of contrasts. The contrast here is Abel coming and offering a sacrifice by faith, and Cain coming and offering a sacrifice. One sacrifice is accepted, the other sacrifice is rejected. And so there's been a lot of speculation over the years about why Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Some say, well, it's because Abel brought a lamb, and so it's the whole blood thing. But we see in Leviticus that there are fruit-of-the-ground offerings. There are grain offerings that, that God commanded. I know that's a long time after that event. So it's, you know, there were some offerings that were not blood-oriented, that were acceptable worship to God. I think it comes down to the fact that Abel offered by faith, and Cain did not. Cain approached God, and he was going through the routine of worship, the actions that we would say are involved in worship. But Abel showed up and worshiped in faith. Abel loved God in that way. Cain did not. And it it convicted me. Because I said, how many times do I come to worship and I'm going through the motions? I got to come. I got to do what I got to do. You know, I put my nice clothes on and I come and I smile and I say hello. And I sit and I sing and I participate. But am I believing in God? Am I trusting him? Am I wanting to draw near to him? Or do I just want to look good? I just don't want people to say, well, where's Sparkman today? What's your problem? We don't want to fall into the trap of the Pharisees where they were going through the routines of worship, but they weren't worshiping. What's most important for us when we gather together is that we gather to worship God together. And we have to approach him, draw near to him with that true heart of faith. That's what Abel did. Let's move on to chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 1 we see that the writer says we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. These witnesses are the Old Testament believers that we saw in chapter 11. So the writer has put their faith on trial and the testimony of their lives has irrefutably proven that they persevered in faith. They kept believing. Did they ever mess up and sin? 
absolutely. You look through that list and you think, man, there's some horrible people in there. Yeah, we're all horrible. We all have sinful hearts and do terrible things. But Jesus' blood paid for it. And when we come to him by faith, that sin is forgiven. The point of Hebrews 11 is not that these people were perfect, but these people were forgiven. They were forgiven by faith. Their faith fueled their endurance. At the end of chapter 11, it kind of takes a turn. It's talking about all these people, they did great things and they conquered, you know, they shut the mouth of lions, they walked through the flames, you know, they had their dead raised again, and then it turns and it kind of goes dark on us and it says, you know, but some of them were tortured and persecuted, but they still persevered even in the light of the most difficult circumstances. So those are the cloud of witnesses. And what does the writer tell us to do based on the fact that we have all of these examples of faith and endurance to look at? Let us do what? This is in verse 1. Let us lay aside. Yes, what are we laying aside? Every weight and sin that holds us down. So the, the, the imagery here is a runner in, a, in an athletic context. And laying aside a weight is any impediment that would prevent you from running fast. And then laying aside sin that's going to trip us up. And then what are we to do? We are to run with endurance. That's uh, the second half of this command. So what needs to be our focus in order to fulfill these commands? Verse 2. The answer to every Sunday school question is Jesus. <laughs> I'm facetious, but Jesus is the answer here. So when we are running the race, we want to keep focused on the goal, and the goal is Jesus himself. We want to look to Jesus. Think back about to chapter 2. Jesus is described as the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I'm sorry, that's in verse 2 here. In, if you look back in he, Hebrews 2.10, he is also described as the one we are to look to. He is the one to focus on. He's the one that led by example. He's the one that obtained perfection for us. So why would we look to him? Because he endured. He endured to the end, and we can too. He kept focused on the joy set before him that was the eternal reign that is promised, the end result. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and at the end of it all, he sat down when his work was done at God's right hand. So consider Jesus. Consider him. So then we get to the fifth and final warning in the Hebrews, and it's in verses 18 through 29. The core warning is in verse 25. It says, do not, let, do not refuse do not refuse him who is speaking. Well, who is speaking? If you look back at verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's our reference to Abel. So here we have the blood of Jesus is speaking, and it says, do not turn down the volume. Do not shut the door on Jesus talking. He wants to talk to you, and he's talking to you through his sacrifice, do not refuse him. And then he gets to these verses that are in our 
um, question. And it uses this key word, shake, key word for these verses. So what will God shake in verse 26? Heaven and earth. He's going to shake heaven and earth. This will make the biggest earthquake look small. What does at that time refer to? So he shook the earth in, at that time. He's referring back to Mount Sinai, which was discussed in the prior verses. And it was God's voice that shook Mount Sinai. In Haggai 2, 6, and 7, it says, God will shake the heaven and earth, sea, and dry land, and all nations. It's as if he's grabbing the nations, he's turning them upside down, and he's shaking them for all, they, all they're worth. But what is not shaken? Verse 28. Let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God's kingdom cannot be shaken. God is the shaker, not the shaken. He's the only one that we can rely on. We have a few minutes for chapter 13 here. Verse 1 gives us an overarching command, let brotherly love continue. And then he goes through this list, this laundry list of different, of relationship to different types of people. So let's just run through this. And I've cast it as who it is, who is it that we are to love? So first of all, in verse 2, who's it? Strangers. Yes, Andy. Brethren, by showing hospitality. Excellent, yes. So we love strangers by showing hospitality. In the beginning of verse 3, it talks about someone who's in prison. Who's this? Brothers. And then it talks in the, in the end of verse 3, people that maybe are not in, in prison, but they are mistreated, right? In verse 4, it talks about spouses by being pure and faithful. In verse 6, it kind of goes the other direction, and it says don't love money, but be content with what you have. And there's a reason for that, because God has given you everything you need. And then in verse 7, it says, think about your leaders by remembering them. And after these very practical verses, he goes back into this discussion of how Jesus is better in verses 8, 16. It's almost like a summary of the book. It's kind of interesting that, that he takes that approach. And he describes how Jesus is better and that we are encouraged to endure like he endured. So, our last question is really kind of open-ended here. How has the book of Hebrews spoken to you over the last three weeks? What are some takeaways from the book, particularly related to how Jesus is better? Anyone have anything they want to share there? Sure, Cindy, yeah. Amen. You can rest knowing that Jesus paid it all once and for all. Excellent. Amen. Anybody else? Yes. Amen. Jesus is pleased if we have strong faith. That's great. So as I was, I was reflecting on it, I just said, you know, Jesus is so much better than the Old Testament system of worship. I'm so grateful to live in the age of grace rather than under the Old Testament Mosaic law. He's so much better than anything that we could worship today. And what are the things that we worship? It's anything that we give our time and attention to that we want more than we want God. And then through Jesus, we are able to be close to God 
near through salvation and drawing near through his ministry as a great high priest. So the, the encouragement to draw near to God was one thing that really stuck out to me in this. It made me think back to several months ago when we were talking about Romans, and it was very clear that the unbeliever does not seek God. There is no one who seeks God on their own. God draws them. The believer, on the other hand, is encouraged to seek God, to get close to him, to seek him out. So, if you don't feel close to God this morning, if I don't feel close to God at a time, what's the problem? The problem is not <laughs> God. The problem is me. You see, because what we see clearly in this book is God wants us to be close to him. He wants that. He wants relationship with us. If you choose to stiff arm him and not have relationship with him, that's on you. That's on me. How do we do that? Well, it might be through simple negligence. It's like, I'm not going to throw a stiff arm to God. You know, that's horrible. I would never do that. But if I don't read my Bible all week, what have I done? I've neglected the relationship. And maybe that's not a stiff arm. Maybe it wasn't intentional. I was just busy with things that distracted me. I failed to lay aside the weight, right? But I risk drifting away when I'm not pursuing relationship with him. God wants us to be close to him, and it's possible to be close to God. Why is it possible? Because of Jesus. And Jesus is awesome. So let me close the book by encouraging you and encouraging me. We can be as close to God as we want to be. We do it by drawing near to God through Jesus, our perfect Savior and our great high priest. So let's keep on trusting, keep on believing, hang on tightly to him. Let's say like Peter did, where else can I go? You have the words of life. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the words of life. We're so grateful for Jesus, our Savior and great high priest. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ on the cross that paid for our sin for all time, for every sin that we commit. And we're thankful for his work as the high priest who intercedes for us. And so we come confidently before your throne this morning as your people, and we ask that you would identify sin that is in us right now, that you would convict us of it, and that we would confess it, that you would help us to commit to drawing near to you, that you would convince us of the relationship with you that you desire. And we ask that you would use your word in our lives to transform us to be like your son, and we ask it on his authority. Amen.